I mean, I, I do sometimes wonder how many of you wish you were a child that when I said that you could leave as well, um, but it looks bad if you're an adult and you walk out, so I, I don't know how that says, right? Um, but I was thinking this week about this particular question. It's a question that none of us really long to answer. It's a question none of us really like, um, but, but if I said to you, uh, would you like to suffer? You're all like, well, no, that's a dumb question. Why would you ever ask me if I want to suffer? No, I don't want to suffer. But if I asked you the question, hey, would you like great things in your life that are super fun and happy and you wouldn't have to suffer at all? You'd be like, well, yeah, like, sign me up. That makes, that's a no-brainer. But what if the reality is this? What if we are all um, going to suffer? And what if the reality is how we respond to that suffering becomes the thing that determines our future? And so I was thinking about moments in my life when suffering um, was one of those things where I experienced, and so like some of these are kind of low-hanging fruit to start with. I was in sixth grade, and I went to the Anthony Thompson All-American football camp. And I never played football in my life, but I went to this camp because I knew Anthony, and I thought, well, cool, he's, you know, runner-up for the Heisman, played in the NFL, this will be so much fun, I like sports. Um, I didn't like the first day, I can tell you that. I wanted to go home. I was like, this is dumb. I'm not even going to play football. Why did I come to this camp? And so um, then he made this comment about some of you are going to quit today. And I'm like, well, I'm not a quitter. So I had to come the next day, right? So, um, but Anthony, all week long, to show that you could suffer and overcome stuff every day, he added more articles of clothing. By the way, it was 95 and humid. And he kept adding more clothes. So by Friday, he's wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt and a stocking cap. And I was like, I don't like you anymore. Um... But there were moments where my body hurt. And I was thinking about when I was in ninth grade. And our, our high school had historically a pretty good basketball team, usually in the top 10 or 15 in the state. And, and we had this kind of preseason conditioning. It was five weeks long, and it was torture. And, and my first day there, I came from Tennessee, and so I thought I was in pretty good shape until about um, halfway through, we have to run laps at the end of it. And it's just like, it's not how, there's not a number. It's just keep going until they tell you to stop. And so I just, I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm going to have to walk. And I started to walk, and Clint Weddle, I can still tell you who it was, he was a top 40 player in the state, and Clint grabbed my arm as I'm walking, he goes, we don't walk here. I'm walking. Um, not anymore, I'm not. Now it's more like a fast shuffle, right? Like, it's a, it's a pseudo run, didn't look much like a run. Uh, and then I was thinking about when, when I was in college, there was a guy, it was Anthony Thompson's brother, Ernie Thompson, also played football in Indiana, played in the NFL. Ernie came and spoke a few years here ago. And so Ernie reached out to me and said, hey, would you want to train with me? Um, I know you're playing sports in college. I'd love to train you if you want to come. And I'm like, cool. And so we met at Indiana State's football stadium. Um, and I'm not sure still this day. I mean, we still occasionally do it when I go home and visit. But you actually don't get in. You just have to climb the fence to get in. Um, probably illegal, but that's a whole other conversation. And we climbed the fence. And they're, staying, they're Division I football, but they only have half the stadium. Like, they don't have the other half. So it's extra large on one side. And so we would run stadium steps, and the first time I did it, about halfway through, like it's about a 45 minutes to an hour workout, my legs are like shaking, and I'm thinking I'm going to fall. By the end of the summer, I'd kind of overcome some of that, and I could catch him, but then he changed the rules, and you had to pass on the way down, you couldn't pass on the way up. Well, that's just dumb, so no one's doing that. But I was thinking about those are physical things where you kind of suffered, and you can overcome, and you learn endurance. But I was thinking about some other moments in my life. I've been a couple in, in 20 years of ministry where... There's something that someone has said about you that has got promoted or shared, and you know it's not true, but you can't respond to it. Because if you respond to it, you're going to have to throw someone else under the bus, or you're going to have to divulge a confidence someone shared with you, and so you just have to eat your words and stay silent. I'll be honest with you. I would take all the physical suffering over those moments, hands down. 
right? And what about you? We've all had moments where we've suffered as well, right? You've had moments, whether it be physically, some of you physical sufferings are real things for you, and you wrestle with those, and you don't know what to do with those, but, but we have suffered in different ways. And so I remember a, a mentor of mine, he used this phrase over and over again, and it's stuck in my head and will be forever. He just reminded me, he said, hey, um, there's a moment where, one of those moments where you got to stay silent, and I wanted to speak, and he goes, keep your mouth shut. I'm like, yeah, but I, I would, but, I, but they said this about me, and he's like, yeah, let it go. And he said, here's the thing, you'll, you'll never regret taking the high road, you never will. But you almost always regret when you take the low road. It's like, man, I hate when you're right. Um, but I was thinking about like moments of taking the low road, where because I'd love to say I've never done that, but I have. And I was in, I was in college, and I was officiating basketball, and it was intramurals, which don't ever sign up to do that if you have the option. Um, but they were like, we'll pay you. Like, ah, money it sounds great. Um, and and we were officiating one game one time, and the, the assistant football coach was on that team, and he was kind of a kind of a jerk, and and. He was saying stuff to me, and I said, well, you know, something back, and, and then he said something else, and he said, you should just quit because you're terrible at this, and I'm like, well, I'm actually thinking better than most of the guys doing this, but I, you know, you just don't like my calls, so that's your problem, and he said something else, and then I said, hey, you know what, if I should just quit, you should definitely quit because the football team didn't win a game last year. Probably not the wisest thing to say. Like I said, I didn't play football. Um... But I was thinking about how, here's the reality for all of us, we can say things or do things, and they lead to a level of suffering. And here's what it means to suffer. From Cambridge Dictionary, it says this, to, to experience physical or mental pain. To experience physical or mental pain. Right? Like I said, most of us would probably take physical at some level over some of the things that we can emotionally have dealt with. But then again, some of you are dealing with such physical issues that you don't know what to do with that either. None of us like to suffer. Here's the reality. You and I, we're all going to suffer. I can't promise you how you're going to suffer, how long you might have to suffer, or what it looks like. But what I can say is this. We have some control over our response to our suffering. Or said differently, if you are a follower of Jesus, how will you respond to suffering? How will you respond to suffering? Last week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 and how Peter calls us to this holy life. But then this week in chapter 2, Peter says to us something that honestly I don't really love. It's this letter he writes to the whole church, to the broader church. And it's this idea that what do we do when we have come to follow Jesus and what are the repercussions that might come from doing that? Here's what Peter writes to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 says this. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps." He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your souls. I got to begin where Peter begins, because if I don't, it'll be confusing to start this text. Peter begins with talking about slavery. And the slavery Peter is talking about is not the same thing we think of pre-American Civil War. That is not the same thing. In fact, those would be kind of radically different things at some level. In fact, at one point, probably about the time this was written, about 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Over half of every community was slaves. But the way they viewed slaves in the Roman Empire was radically different than the way we think of slaves. In fact, um, the church was so unique in that first century world that the church would be the place where the slave might be the leader of the church and the master might be subservient to the slave in the context of the local church. Pretty cool, by the way. Because it was more about your character and your heart and what God had done in your life and your leadership in the church than it was about what you were positionally in the community. But here's a helpful um, kind of commentary from a commentary on what that looked like in the first century world. Here's what the writer writes. Slavery in the first century Mediterranean world was unlike American slavery before the Civil War. Slavery through kidnapping, for example, was virtually eliminated by the Roman Empire in the first century BC. While there are some similarities, the differences are vast and significant. And so here one scholar shares the differences. Racial factors played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were better educated than their owners and enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws prohibited the public assembly of slaves. And perhaps above all, the majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. Slavery was a widespread and basic foundation for the propagation of ancient Greco-Roman society. When Peter was writing this letter, slaves constituted better than 50% of the population of major cities. And don't miss this line. The quality of the life of slaves depended almost entirely upon the character of their owners. So what in the world is Peter getting at here? Well, he's writing to a church that would have been mostly slaves or servants of some kind. And so here's what he's trying to say to followers of Jesus in following after Jesus. Suffering is a part of the life of the follower of Jesus. Period. Suffering is a part of the life of the follower of Jesus. Um, but it's not like the self-induced suffering. It's not the kind we're talking about there. And so here's what I mean by self-induced suffering. Like we all know people who woe is me when you tell them what you're experiencing. They've always got something worse than whatever you tell them. Oh, well, what? guess what I'm dealing with. You're like, oh my gosh, every time. Right? Or it's someone who says this, like they make poor decisions, like they, they say there's no good employers in the world and it's because they've quit their last five jobs or there's no good employers, but I don't show up for work on time. I leave early every time I can. I don't do anything I'm asked to do and I can't find anyone who will hire me. Really? I'm so shocked by that. Right? He's not talking about the kind who when you've made a poor decision, you get a poor result. Like that's the reality. Those are the consequences of our action. What Peter is writing about is sometimes we do the right thing and we still suffer. In relation to our relationship with Jesus, sometimes we follow him faithfully and suffering is still a reality that we experience. And so here's the reality for us. I could go on and on with all kinds of examples about people who woe is me or self-inflicted suffering, but that's not what we're talking about here. What Peter is writing about is what we call the cruciform pattern of Jesus. This cruciform life of Jesus that he invites you and I to to follow him over and over again. It's what we see throughout his life and his teaching and his ministry. It's where he says things like this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you want to 
you're going to lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Or said differently, um, whoever wants to follow me, deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Right? It's the reminder that 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. They were executed because of their witness of who Jesus was over and over again. Here's what I could say to make it simple. Follow Jesus. Come and die. You're like, well, sign me up for that. That sounds great. I'm in on that. Um, no, probably not. When you hear that, you're like, oh, that sounds miserable. But is it? What if the cruciform pattern of Jesus is the life that you and I are called to live? What if what seems like certain death might actually bring you and I life? Right? We live in a world that hates the idea of suffering. We do everything we can to avoid suffering of any kind. In fact, we have subscriptions to things like Amazon where they ship us stuff and they get there within a day. And if they, like this week, my, my wife ordered a pair of shoes for my daughter. And I got this email. I was like, ah, I don't, don't need to, can you want to respond to this? It was basically just said, hey, we're sorry for the delay. Do you want to cancel the order? And I was, I was like, do we need to, I said, I don't even know what you ordered, but do I need to cancel this order or say yes? She goes, oh, to confirm it's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll get it whenever it gets here. It came three days later. It wasn't like years later. It was three days. Like, oh, we can't wait three days. Whoa. We can't get it tomorrow. It's not good enough. It's not quick enough for us. Or I was thinking about years ago, I, um, so one of the places my kids like to go eat dinner occasionally is called Burger King. Maybe you've been there. Uh, there was one night we were coming back for a thing at church, and so we went to Burger King before, and Eleanor Dieter, who's since passed away, Eleanor was there, and she lived around the corner, and, and Eleanor goes, oh, I see you like these high-class places like me. And I said, oh, absolutely, Eleanor. So there we were at Burger King, and um, they have the slogan of Burger King. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, have it your way. But here's the problem. I'm all for, I don't want pickles or onions on my burger. Like, that just sounds horrible. Who wants those? Some of you are like, well, what's wrong with you? Like, well, that's fair enough. That's why it's called have it your way. I want it my way. But here's the problem for us. We embrace a life that says, I want it my way. And we embrace a life that says, I want it my way. We miss the reality of who Jesus calls us to be. Because it's a lie we believe that we know best or we know what's right. Or if I get to choose what I want to work out the way it should work out. Here's some of the lies that you and I believe. We believe the lie that if I just say I'm going to follow Jesus and I even say a prayer, I can live however I want. Not true. The lie that we know what's best for ourselves or for our future, not true. That if I do whatever makes me feel good or happy is right, not true. That my identity and uniqueness is what defines me, not true. That whatever my sexual passions or urges are meant to be fulfilled because it feels good, again, not true. That I can spend my money however I want because it's mine, or the ends justify the means, or we have control of our lives, all those are myths, they're lies that we believe and we embrace, and they are just not true. Those are things where we say, you can have it your way. But that isn't what Jesus ever invites us to. Again and again and again. And we like those things because to say no to some of those things may require a level of suffering that I don't desire and I don't want, and I don't want to embrace. A guy named John Mark Comer wrote a book called Live No Lies. Some of you have read the book as a part of a study we did here, but he makes the argument there are three things that we embrace lies from, and he says these three things that war at us are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I'm not going to unpack all that, but I want to share a quote from his book, Live No Lies. Here's what he writes. Our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. 
over and over again, what we find is the picture in Scripture is one that if we embrace things as God calls us to embrace them, it will probably require selflessness and sacrifice and letting go, right? I would say it this way. We have to lay down areas of our life. Like, suffering often looks like self-denial. Suffering often looks like selflessness. Suffering often looks like submission, right? These ideas that we let go of these things, that we entrust our whole self, that we don't get to control everything because it's mine, and I want this for my family or for my future. But what does God want in the middle of that? We can embrace things because we like them, but it doesn't mean they're good or true or last. They can still be lies. Right? So submission to Jesus may feel like certain death in some moments, but it actually leads to life. I know that's counterintuitive to most of us, the idea that we would submit to something, that we would submit in such a way that we would let go of, because it seems like I'm giving up, I'm giving in, but maybe in the giving up and the giving in, what we get is greater than we could ever imagine. What if in that we find life that leads to life and death doesn't even enter in? What if we find it's the very pattern of Jesus, it is the cruciform pattern of Jesus over and over again, that from that what seemed like death becomes new life. Jesus is the embodiment of the suffering servant. And here's why that matters. Jesus' suffering led people to God. How we respond to suffering may lead people to Jesus. Jesus' suffering led people to God. How we respond to suffering may lead people to Jesus. Those moments when someone has experienced some great wrong in their life and they don't respond with retaliation or getting even, they just move on and they stay silent. How do they respond that way? Or that moment when someone has done something to someone so gregarious that you can't imagine and they forgive them? I was in Charleston, South Carolina just a couple years ago. There was that racist man who went into the black church and he killed a bunch of people and at his trial, one of the men forgave him. He killed his wife. I mean, that only happens by the grace of God. That only happens because we have died to something internally, that we have suffered in a way that we come to know what life really looks like in the middle of that. Did you see how they responded? Because that leads to the possible transformation of the lives of others. So why might you and I embrace and choose suffering? This is a call of Jesus to suffer with him. Why? Maybe Paul's words are helpful for us in Romans 5. He writes this, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So why do Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers call us to suffer? Right, we'll go back to the analogy of athletics for a few minutes, right? Because, in fact, Paul uses this all the time. He talks about boxers being the air or runners training because it's a helpful analogy as we think about life. What seems insurmountable, we can overcome with patient endurance, Patient endurance leads us to greater strength 
and depth than we've ever known. It's why Paul continues to use this idea of training. If we train well, right, if we become people who train in certain ways, we will overcome through patient endurance in the midst of our suffering. We'll find that no matter how long the suffering may last, we know the one who helped me to overcome in the midst of the suffering. And so here's what Paul wrote. Suffering leads to perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. Character leads to hope. And hope ultimately leads to love. So from our suffering, it changes the very character of who we are. And when our character changes, we find hope becomes something that we can embrace because we know the one who is helping us to endure. And once we come to know that hope, we come to know the depth of God's love. So our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces our character. Character produces hope. And hope in the God of love. I know, again... No one wants to sign up for suffering. But here's the question. In the middle of our suffering, whatever it may be, what are we producing? Are we producing perseverance? Is our character being transformed? Are we becoming people of hope or of love? Like, what is that over and over again for us in a world filled with suffering and chaos and unrest? What might happen if the very people of God lived as we said a few weeks ago, as a non-anxious presence in the world, because we know in the midst of whatever we experience, we have come to know the one that gives life. In the midst of our suffering. It's why, Peter then writes this line, that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, our very beings, that he offers us this idea that he is for us the source of these things, that he leads us in that direction. And so there's a story, uh, it's not a fake story, it's a real story, right? but it's about a, a California rancher. And so ranches in California who have shepherds, right? They have, they have fences, right? Because what do you do with sheep? Sheep are not the smartest animals, they're just going to take off, and so you've got to put fences up or your sheep are all going to disappear. But in Australia, they do not um, have fences because it's big. Where are you going to put fences? You just put so many fences out there, it's not worth it. And so how do they keep the sheep? So this rancher from California is in Australia, and he's asking the, the rancher the question, like, how do you guys control your sheep? How do you keep them nearby? How do you, you don't have fences. I, I don't see them anywhere. What do you do to keep the sheep here? And he says, oh, that's simple, actually. We dig deep wells. We mean dig deep wells. Well, like... We dig wells, because if you notice, Australia is relatively dry outside the kind of the, the areas here that are on the, the water. Like, it's pretty dry. And so we dig deep wells, and so there's a great source of water. And because of that great well, the sheep stay here because it's the source of life. And so we see they start to wander certain areas. We just dig a deeper well. And by the quality of our water, by the quality of the well, they stay nearby because they begin to realize the further they get from that well, the further they get from life, and the further they get from, from water, then they die, right? Like, they, they, they're not completely dumb. Like, they do get that they need water to survive, and so they keep coming back to this well. This California rancher had this thought, like, we're in life. Do we keep putting up fences when we should dig deeper wells? Where in life do we keep putting up fences, whether it be socioeconomic or political or whatever the thing might be? Where do we keep putting up fences over and over and over again when we should be tearing them down and digging deeper wells? Sources of life. And so here's the reality for us, right? You and I are not called to put up fences, but to dig deeper wells. If we go back to that last line of the commentary on slavery that I read, here was the line. It said, the quality of life of slaves depended almost entirely upon the character of their owners. 
Here's the reality for you and I. We are all slaves to something. Before you reject that and say, no, I'm not a slave to anything, then you are a slave to yourself and your passions. We're all a slave to something. We all follow something or someone, but what if Jesus became the master of our lives? What if he who is the great shepherd, what if he is who is the source of life, what if we were so drawn to him as the source of life that we kept going to him more and more, and whatever we experienced in the midst of our suffering, we didn't have to wander away, we weren't creating more fences, but we were going through the deepest well we could find. And it was producing in us life. And it produced in us life in such a way that no matter what we experienced, no matter what we suffered, because we can't control the suffering in our lives, but we can have some influence over our response. And here's why I, I say influence, and I'm not willing to say that we can control how we respond, because how we respond is us shaped by our character, which happens over time. Here's an example, right? If you, if you or I, right, if we fantasize about getting even with people on a regular basis, and we think about that, and then we have a moment to get even, what are you going to do? You're going to get even. Even if you know it's wrong, because your character has been shaped by that thought process over and over and over again. But if you and I, if we pray daily that we would die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow after Jesus, and every day we say over and over again, God, I want to look like your son. I want to love like Jesus. I want to live that way. No matter what I experience, I want to be a person who forgives even when someone doesn't deserve it, if we say that in our minds over and over again, then when we have the moment to respond, which we do have control and influence over, or we have influence, and I won't say control, we have influence over how are we going to respond? With graciousness, like Jesus. Over and over and over again. But how do we change the character of our life? How do we embrace suffering, right? What are the rhythms and patterns of our life? It's why we talked several weeks ago about the, the, we call them spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices and why they're so important in our life. Right? One we've talked about before is called fasting, where you don't eat. And, and like, I'm not talking about the not eat because I have like, eating disorder stuff. So that's a whole different conversation that we get into another day. But what I'm talking about is the idea of committing for one to two or three meals, maybe two days, intentionally, with the goal of it being about a spiritual nourishment and not about food. And, and so in those moments of the hunger pains to say, God, may I long for you the way I long for food. May I live from you. May you be the source of my life. May I come to you because you are the deep well. And so we've used this phrase, it's not mine, but sometimes we will starve the flesh to feed the spirit. And out of that, it will shape our character so that you and I are able to respond as people who are committed to Jesus, who have come to the one who is the deep well. In the midst of our suffering, we do respond in ways that are loving and gracious and kind. Because if I want to foster that, then I have to learn to sit with him over and over again, or else I will foster everything else. So what's it look like for you and I that when we come to know the source of love, that is sacrificial, that would lay its life down on the cross for you and I in the depth of God's love. When we come to know that, and that becomes the source of our love, we recognize that we can endure anything. And so these everyday practices, these everyday rhythms, where we just entrust ourselves over and over again, we spend time in prayer, we spend time in the scripture, we go to church on a weekly basis, it's a rhythm of our life, it nourishes us and fills us and shapes us, so that over and over again, 
The words of Peter make sense that he is the source of life. And when we feel like the world is arid and dry, we know the place that is a wellspring that wells up inside of us that comes from him. Because, again, the cross looked like certain death, but three days later, the empty tomb looks like resurrection or new life. And so you and I can know that when it feels like death, we know the one who offers new life. We go back to the words of Peter when they hurled their insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. By the way, we're called to follow Jesus. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the source of life. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of whatever we find ourselves going through, he offers for us a source of life. If we'll keep coming to him as the deep well that gives life, over and over again, we'll find that apart from him, life is even harder than we ever could imagine. But with him, it leads to our transformation. So will we entrust ourselves to Jesus? Will we trust that God is a just judge? Notice I say just, not fair. We don't want a God who's fair. Believe me, you don't want that. We want just. We want a God who is just for us. Are we willing to trust the one who says that if we'll die to our sin, we can live for righteousness, that he will allow... Jesus' wounds will be what heal us. We allow him to be the shepherd of our lives and will we follow after him? Because if so, you and I can find he is the source of life in the midst of our suffering. Because again, to the followers of Jesus, the words that he invites us to are kind of scary from the outside. If we have no understanding, he says this, come and die. Come and die. But find that I might give life. Take up your cross daily and follow after me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it for my sake. Over and over again, we find this. We follow Jesus. We find he is the one who helps us to overcome our suffering. So will you and I choose to suffer? Will we choose to find life in him, the life that leads to life, so that no matter what we experience in the midst of our suffering, he is the one, he is the source, he is our hope. And in him, we find that if we live in that way, other people, right, by his suffering, people were led to God, and by our response to suffering, people might be led to him. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the way in which you invite us to follow after you. You invite us to come to know the depth of your love and your life and your mercy and your grace, that it would be for us a source of life welling up inside of us. That by laying ourselves down, by living selflessly and sacrificially and following in the cruciform pattern of your son, that it might be for us this renewing thing that would happen in us, that it might transform our lives and our homes, and we might find that we can endure anything beyond what we ever thought possible, and we would come to know the fullness of what life can actually be. So, Father, help us today to live, to learn, to love like you, to let you be the source of our life, and we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.